Hi, uh, I'm Tim. Um, I'm one of the staff workers here and uh, uh, it's my privilege to speak today. It'll be helpful to have the uh, uh, handout open. There's an outline of where we're going. If you find that useful, that's terrific. Let me turn some lights up. Um, I presume you've noticed that we live in a celebrity world, don't we? Uh, actors, entertainers, maybe politicians uh, are adored by the millions. Kylie Jenner, whoever she is, has got 320 million Insta followers. Uh, Justin Bieber, I've heard of him, 225. Taylor Swift, only 203 million followers. Can you believe it? Only 203. But they're actually topped by the sporting legends. Ronaldo, 417 million followers on Instagram. Messi, not far behind. Some people are just celebrities for being celebrities. Kim Kardashian has over 300 million followers. And what's she done? Nothing. <laughs> but it's not surprising then that in the Christian world, we've got our celebrities, our celebrity pastors, our famous followed pastors. If Twitter's any indication, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Rick Warren, John Piper, Brian Houston are celebrity pastors. Why? Well, I guess it's partly we live in a connected world. They're on our feeds. We, we see them. We see that they're popular. We latch on. And some of them are doing wonderful things. They're rightly admired. Others are dangerous heretics, wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus would, would term them. But the question I want to ask is, why do people follow them? It's easy to lay the, lay the blame at the foot of the pastors. They're, they're showmen. They're, they're, they want the celebrity. They're seeking it. But it takes two to tango. The followers have a part in it as well. And in the church in Corinth, they're deeply infected with this celebrity culture. They've got multiple celebrity pastors in their church. It's an issue Paul raised way back in chapter 1, verse 11. He says, I, I, I hear that there's divisions among you, there's quarrels. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. They're divided into these celebrity factions. They're groupies. And in chapter 3, that is still what Paul's talking about. I hope you pick that up in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. You're still worldly, you're jealous, you're quarrelling. When one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, aren't you being merely human? It's still the issue he's thinking about. Chapter 3, verse 21, he's still there. No more boasting about people. It, it, it's where he goes all the way from chapter 111 to chapter, the end of chapter 4. We're jumping in at the middle. <coughs> but I want you to notice that Paul blames the followers, not the leaders in this instant. That's critical as we try and unravel and take to heart what he says. Let's backtrack to how Paul has dealt with it so far. Over the last three weeks, Matt has been taking us through chapter 117 to 216. And Paul points out that these, these Corinthian Christians are just like their, their city. They're impressed with power and wisdom. They want miracles and signs. They want clever speakers with brilliant rhetoric and entertaining speeches. And they follow the Christian leaders who can deliver that, who can give them what they want. But Paul says that God's power and wisdom is not found in people who impress you with their signs and wonders or their eloquent tongues. It's found in Christ crucified and in the message of the cross, which to human minds seems weak and foolish 
Who would be interested in a crucified Messiah? But actually has the power to save, to transfer people from hell to heaven. It has the wisdom to transform people's lives. But Paul, as he writes, is very aware that that's not what most people want. They want the show. They want the style. They dismiss Jesus and his shameful crucifixion as weak and foolish. It's only when God's Holy Spirit opened people's minds and eyes that they recognised the wisdom of God in the cross of Jesus and humbly, gratefully welcome it and embrace it. Now, the Corinthians have the Spirit. They're Christians. But in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he says, but when I look at your behaviour, I wouldn't believe you have the Spirit. You're behaving just like worldly people who don't have the Spirit. You're like spiritual babies, he said. You're not ready for solid food. I give you milk. They're still pooing their nappies. They're still squabbling over their toys. Why? Because they're into this, well, I'm about Paul and I'm about Apollos. And notice, well, the way he says it, it's more about the follower than the person they're following. See, if I said, I'm a John Piper man or I'm a Rick Warren man, it's not really about John Piper. It's about me. Now, if John Piper's cool and I'm one of his guys, then that makes me cool, doesn't it? If, if Tim Keller is clever and I'm one of Tim Keller's guys, well, I get some of the reflected cleverness. It, it, it's about me and how I feel about myself. I remember a friend of mine who um, used to love it when any big band came to Perth, Foo Fighters or U2 or Ed Sheeran or anybody like that, and he'd immediately apply for a job as one of the roadies. Because if you get a job as a roadie, then he sort of got some of the reflected glory. He could wear the T-shirt with the tour on it. You know, the beat the world tour by whoever and all the dates. And he could wear that around. And people would say, ah, you too, Foo Fighters. Yeah. Now, what's a roadie? Just a pack horse. That's all they are. But if you say, I'm with them, you got the T-shirt, you get something from it. And Paul wants to drag the Corinthians out of their infantile thinking about their leaders. And he starts in verse 5. What, after all, is Paul? What, what is Apollos? Just servants. That's all we are, through, who, who, through whom you came to believe. Verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The major player is not the person you're enamoured with, it, it's God. And he uses this farming, gardening I- illustration... Any ag students here? Any would-be gardeners here? Aha, one. Thanks, Ben. You'll know. You you can tell us. See, in gardening, you can create all the right conditions, can't you? You can fix up the soil. You can make it wet. You can put seeds in it. But you can't make it grow. You can even play music to it. But that won't make it grow. You can cajole it. You can get in there and tell it, come on. Grow today, and will that make it put a sprout up? No. It's God who does it. The farmers and gardeners have to learn patient humility because they're not in control. Hey, why did your friend become a Christian and mine didn't? We both planted, we both watered. What made the difference? Well, it wasn't me, it wasn't you, it was God. He made one seed grow, he didn't make the other grow. 
He makes the fruit grow by his spirit. He gives this spirit to some so that when they hear the gospel of Jesus, they respond and not to others. And for someone like me, that's very humbling because I like to be in control. I, I like to take the credit. Why do some churches grow and others not grow? Well, because God makes some grow and not others. And that's got implications for how we view the workers, our church leaders. Verse 5, they're just servants. You walk around UWA, don't you? Do you see the gardeners? Do you see the security guys? Most of us just walk past without looking because they don't matter, do they? Well, that's what he's saying. That, that's all we are. We're just the servants. Sure, I planted, Apollos watered, and that's sort of essential for growth. There's no growth without that, but it's not the determining factor. God is. I'm just the plough boy. I'm just the water boy. Some were converted through Paul's ministry, some through Apollos' ministry, but it's as the Lord assigned to each, not as they determined. Paul's pointing out that we usually we have a tendency to have too high a view of our leaders and pastors. If there's growth, if the church is going well, we think it's about them, we attribute it to them. If it shrinks, we blame them. It's sort of like the corporate world. What do all our corporations do and our sporting teams? Well, they appoint a, a CEO to grow the company. If they succeed, if the company starts to grow, what happens? Well, their bonuses go through the roof because they think it's the CEO who's done it. If the company tanks, they get rid of them, bring in another one. Because the CEO determines what's going to happen. It's very mechanistic. Get the right person, it guarantees the outcome. But the spiritual world is different. God decides. He gives the growth or doesn't give the growth. We can't control it. And the Corinthians should realise that because they're an object lesson. How mature are they? How much have they grown? Well, they had Paul as their planting pastor for 18 months. They've had Apollos, who was brilliant, as the pastor for the next four years. How mature are they? They're babies. There hasn't been much growth. They had the, the quality pastors, but it hasn't produced growth. And he applies this in verses 21 to 23. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and your Christ and Christ is God's. So you guys have too high a view of your leader in particular. Now there is the opposite error, having too low a view, we treat pastors and leaders like dirt. But here it's this too high a view and he says no more boasting about Keller or Piper or Smith or Smart. Don't say, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or, or Peter. God may have used one person in your life in a very special way. Terrific. But it's God who's used them. And in verses 21-22, he turns their whole worldview, their way of seeing things, upside down. You're talking as if you belong to Paul or an Apollos. No, they belong to you. They're your servants. All of them. And it, because it's all of them, you don't have to choose one or the other. Don't play one off against the other, comparing and competing, because they all belong to you. They're all gifts from God to you. So imagine you're given a box of chocolates. Open the lid, what do you see? Well, you see mint chocolates, you see 
uh, orange chocolates. You, you see Turkish delight. You see all these wonderful chocolates. Now you might think, oh, my favourite is mint. And so you eat the mint and find another mint and eat that and then you close the box. No, they're all yours. You don't have to just eat one brand, one flavour. They've all been given to you. Enjoy all of them. You might have your favourites, but don't just throw the rest out because God's given you all these people. So he points out their foolishness. that Unless you click with someone, unless you like their style, you ignore them and you just stick with the one that you like. The sort of thing I hear sometimes where people say in a church, well, I won't go to church this week unless my friend is preaching. That's just dumb, says Paul. You're missing God's gifts to you. You're refusing his good gifts. You belong to Christ, not to them. And all of them are your servants. They belong to you. Now, you might notice from this that plagiarism is a Christian virtue. I know at uni it's, it's frowned on and you get caught out of uni. But in Christian circles within the church, plagiarism is a virtue. Because whatever illustrations, whatever wisdom anybody brings to you, it's God's gift to you for you to use, to benefit you. Plagiarise, go for your life. But there's a central section in this chapter that we need to go back and look at. Because Paul has another concern that is connected to this idea of celebrity culture. But it's deeper and goes more to the heart of what is happening. Because he wants to point out that not all planting and watering is good. There is planting and watering which you might like and be enamoured with, but it might not be good. It might be shonky. It might be dodgy. And so in verses 10 to 17, he delves into this. Notice in verse 9, he changes the metaphor. Your God's field, then he changes to your God's building. He goes from agriculture to architecture, from paddocks uh, to buildings. Uh, God was growing a crop, now he's building a building. But we need to notice that it's you are the building. It's not about bricks and mortar, it's about people being built into a building that belongs to God. And it's not just any building. This is the very temple of God himself that he is building. And in verse 10, Paul says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each, should, uh, each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. So he, he uses this metaphor, this picture of a building. He says, I laid the foundation, which he did at Corinth. That is, he laid out the shape. We saw back in chapter 2, he did that by coming and preaching Christ crucified. That's the foundation that he laid, that, that weak and foolish message that built and grew a church in this place called Corinth. And he says that there's no other foundation than Jesus Christ. If the foundation of what looks to be a church isn't Jesus, then it's not a church of God. It's, it's something else. It's just a, a secular institution. Now, if you're not a Christian, can I ask you to take this to heart if you're exploring Christianity this is a crucial bit of information for you. Because Christianity is not about churches and structures. It's about Jesus Christ. And if you go somewhere which doesn't help you know Jesus and understand Jesus and trust Jesus, 
That's not a church of God. Go somewhere else to find out about Christianity. A genuine church, a CU, that is genuine, it will always point you to Jesus. And it's sad, as I look around this city, that many churches don't do that. They won't help you. Don't go there. I repeat, if a church is not built on Christ, it's not God's church. It might look churchy. It might look brilliant. But it's not God's church. So if you're a Christian, you can't be part of it. You need to leave it, I take it, from what Paul is saying. Unless Christ crucified is the clear and visible foundation, unless everything goes back to Christ, is built on Christ. I don't mean 100 years ago when they laid the foundation stone of that building. I mean today, this week, this year. It's not a church of God. But his main point is not that. His main point is in chapter 10, the last bit of it. Each should build with care. So he goes on in verse 12 and says, If anyone builds on this foundation of Jesus using gold, silver, costly stones or wood, hay and straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So you can build on the right foundation but it can be shonky building. You can build with poor quality materials and poor workmanship. Now, I I think this is probably an urban myth, but it's a good urban myth, so let me tell you the story. There was a developer once who wanted to develop a a block into a a series of townhouses. And so he hired a builder to build the townhouses for him. And he looked around and he saw a builder that seemed to have pretty classy work. And he gave him the tender to build the townhouses. Well, actually, he was a shonky builder. He, was really, he just cut corners everywhere he could. The mortar they used was more sand than cement. Uh, all the beams in it were under specification. Put a bit too much pressure on, they're going to fall in. All the fittings looked chrome and shiny, but actually were just plastic. Well, the developer got into financial trouble. And in the end, the only way he could pay the builder for his work was to give him one of the townhouses. So the poor builder got to live in his own shonky workmanship serves him right and Paul's saying with a church you can build for show but it just be shonky or and, and and all dodgy or you can build with quality and both will be exposed on the last day whether there's style or substance whether it's just show or there's some reality and again I think as Aussies we need to hear this because we love style We love our celebrities. We're more interested in the clothes they wear than their convictions. comes to politics, we're more interested in the one-liners than the policy. The budget comes out. We just want to know how many extra dollars I get in my bank account. I I don't care whether they fix climate change. Election around the corner? Well, it's it's whether we like them than their character. We, We really are into style. And it happens with church too. We're more attuned to the style of music than the words being sung. More attuned to whether people are cool than godly. More attuned to whether this place is popular than faithful. But mere style will be exposed for what it is. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test. If what has built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as like one escaping through the flames. 
You've seen the pictures, haven't you, of where a bushfire's gone through. And there was a house there. But it's all burnt up. All that's left is the chimney. Because it was made out of bricks. Everything else gone. And he says the day of judgment is going to be like that. The quality of each man's building, each person's building, will be tested like with fire. Some will survive. Some will just get consumed, all burnt up, nothing left. They'll still be saved because they're saved by God's grace, not by their works. But they'll have nothing left to show. Their life, their efforts, their ministry will have been a waste of time, will have been empty. But I presume some of you see the dilemma that Paul creates for us with this. He says the quality won't be revealed till Jesus returns, but he wants me now to be careful how to build. That means I won't tell till the last day when Jesus returns whether what I'm doing or you're doing is quality or not quality. So what do I do? How do I be careful how to build? It's sort of like your lecturer saying to you, only study the stuff that's going to be in the exam. And you say, well, what's going to be in the exam? And he says, well, you'll find out when you open the exam. (laughs) How fat lot of good that is. What am I supposed to do with it? Well, fortunately, that isn't where Paul leaves us. A couple of things it does help us to do. It, It means that we shouldn't focus on results. Leave those to God. Because if you focus on results, you'll start to do things to get results. And the obvious thing you'll do when you focus on results is you'll give people what they want. But giving people what they want want, won't save them. You'll avoid the message of Christ crucified. You'll build badly. Instead, we need to focus on building rightly, trusting what God has revealed to bring growth, which is the message of Christ crucified. He's already told us That's his power and wisdom. That's what will have eternal effects. So I don't have to wait till the end to work out what quality building can be looked like. I already know that quality building is persistent, loving, faithful message of the cross of Jesus Christ. So we've seen two possible outcomes. You could build shonkily or you could build uh, with quality. On the last day, the shonky will be all burned up, you'll have nothing left, You'll just escape with your skin. Or you can build with quality. On that day, what you've built will remain. It'll be there for eternity. But in verses 16 and 17, he gives another alternative. There's actually a third option of what can happen. Verse 16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred And you together are that temple. You can do something far worse than build shonkily. You can demolish God's building. He's talking about not a building, remember? This is about people. A church, a, a local church congregation, like the church in Corinth or the church that you attend. But it's not just a church. It's not an organization. It's God's temple. This is where God chooses to dwell by his spirit in that corporate group. It's precious to God. It might only be ten old ladies all using Zimmer frames. It could be overrun with homeless and disabled people. In fact, I hope it is. Weird, even embarrassing, but that's the church of God. That's his temple. 
And he says, if you demolish it, God will demolish you. Well, how can you demolish it? Well, in the immediate context, it's very clear how, what demolishing means. It means being one of those people who boast in your human leaders. You are ripping apart the church of God. You are getting a wrecking ball and smashing it to pieces. Because you're saying, I belong to this person and you belong to that person. Let's argue about it. Let's see who's cooler. Let, let's be competitive. And God's church is demolished and split in sunder. Don't mess with God's church. It's his. Don't be one of those people who, for a bit of fun, introduce that competitive spirit. If it is you, stop. Don't deceive yourselves. The church is not a game of celebrity heads. It's not an entertainment venue. It's God's temple. So don't mess with God's church. Let's try and pull some things together. God is in the business of growing churches. And I want to see that happen. I hope you do as well. I want to see churches growing and, and thriving. I want to see heaps of people coming to faith and Christians maturing and, and in faith and love and hope. I presume that's what you want, isn't it? If you're part of a church, I presume you don't want your church to go down the gurgler, wither and stagnate. So how does it happen? How do churches grow? Well, the crucial part is God's part. God makes it grow. He gives the growth. He causes the growth. We can't do it. So even getting the right leaders can't guarantee it. Yes, the leaders do matter, but probably not in the ways that we tend to think. They matter not in their giftedness, not in their celebrity status that can draw the crowds, but simply in their patient dedication to quality building. The foundation of Jesus Christ, the message of Christ crucified. If you've got leaders like that, rejoice. Thank God for them. Listen to them. Benefit from them. The implications, of course, are that means there isn't to be any rivalry or jealousy between different personalities, Paul or Apollos or anybody else, the pastors at your church or the youth leader versus the, the other. They're all on the same team. Don't be groupies. It also means there's no sort of key method that guarantees growth. For people like me who want to see growth, I, I want a key. I, I want, if, you, if I do this, if I implement that, we'll get growth very hard to swallow that it doesn't work like that. I can't control it. God does. A friend of mine was appointed as uh, the youth pastor at one of the churches around here. He, he was a student here at UWA. And uh, the first thing he did when he was appointed youth pastor was he identified about 10 other youth groups around Perth that seemed to be thriving. And he went and spent some time at the youth group and with the youth leaders. Because he said, I wanted to work out what makes a youth group successful? And he wanted empirical data towards that. Now, what do you think of that? Sounds sensible, doesn't it? And I'm sure he learned some helpful things out of it. But at one level, it's just not the way God works. He gives the growth. There is no key that if I just get it, if I can just have the right person in place, if I can just write the, the right program or we change to the right music, that will bring growth. No. There is no such key. And it helps us recognise that perceived growth or lack of growth is no clear indicator of whether people are doing things right or wrong. 
Don't be fooled by growth. Don't be fooled by lack of growth. And knee-jerk reactions to say, well, if it's not growing, you must be doing something wrong. If it is growing, we must be doing something right. That's too superficial. That's applying human wisdom. It'll just lead to constant uncertainty and wanting to change when it hasn't worked this week. Looking for the key to success. That's God's part. What about our part? Well, I want you to notice that if you're a Christian, you are a builder. You and I have the enormous privilege in our different places and different ways of having the opportunity and the capacity to build something that lasts forever. Now, I presume you come to uni, many of us, thinking, I I want to train myself to, to do a job that makes an impact. And I'm glad about that. But let me ask you, how long will the impact last? Uh, Shane Warne, we've just celebrated his life and, and death, and all, all the, the, the commentary uh, from the, the thing yesterday was, Shane's worn memory will go on forever. No, it won't. No, it won't. But you get an opportunity to open the Gospel of Mark with a friend and introduce them to Jesus. Just that private conversation, nobody else knows about it. And in God's kindness, they put their trust in Jesus. That lasts for eternity. There won't be a day in history and beyond history where that doesn't bring joy to you and to them and to Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? You might design a bridge and build a concrete bridge. The High Court in Canberra has been designed to last a thousand years. This will last a thousand, thousand, thousand and still be lasting well beyond that but be careful how you build the only foundation to build on is jesus christ and the only material that to build with that will last for eternity is christ crucified now what i want you to notice here is that the choice paul is putting in front of us is not a choice between right and wrong teaching between true and error the choice here is between substance and fluff. See, the fluff might be right. Probably is. It's not, it's not error. It's not heresy. It just doesn't build. That's the problem. If you're a youth group leader, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this dilemma. You want the youth group to grow. But for it to grow, it's got to be fun, doesn't it? They'll only come if it's fun. They'll only come if we entertain them and the cool kids start to come and they attract more cool kids, so we've got to keep those little group of cool kids coming. How do we do that? Well, that's the trouble. We want them to hear about Jesus. But we're sort of aware that Jesus isn't all that much fun. And so we start to shrink back the stuff about Jesus. Or we make Jesus fun. We make him into somebody that he isn't and... Christ crucified gets just left in the back room somewhere and we just end up entertaining people. Or we give them messages like Jesus can help you pass your exams or Jesus can help you make you, uh, help make you feel better about yourself or when you feel lonely, Jesus can be a good friend to you. Now, they're not untrue, are they? But they're fluff. It won't grow people. It won't last into eternity. I want to invite you today to build to build with God, to be a co-worker with us, with him, in your church, at uni, and see God do things that will last for eternity. Amen.